please stand for the reading of God's word. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sheaves of a of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are great, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now. O Lord, take, my, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, 
for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, and when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elijah the son of Shaphat who was plying with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelve. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people. And they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Calvary. It's so good to be with you all this morning and to bring this message today from 1 Kings chapter 19. Again, I want to thank Pastor Gerald and the elders for this rich opportunity to preach God's word to you. I'm sorry I can't be there in person, but unfortunately, Pam and I have come into contact with someone who has tested positive for the coronavirus. We found out on Friday. We ourselves 
are not positive with the coronavirus, but have been exposed. And we get examinations on next week and we covet your prayers. But because we've been exposed, we have to quarantine. And so I cannot be with you there on today. I'd really look forward to seing your faces and seeing the 60 some odd of you that are there in the pews wearing your mask, hoping to be there worshiping with you. And Pam had hoped that she would also be there to sing with you. But again, we cannot be there today and we miss being with you all. And we hope that you will graciously allow this substitution to say that we are there with you in spirit. This morning, we're gonna be in 1 Kings chapter 19 as was read in your hearing. And we're assuming that you also Remember that part of 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, now we bless you for your kindness and ask that you would pour out your blessings upon the message today as it will be heard, that it will be received with joy and with great obedience and that your spirit will move on the hearts of all who hear, both now and later. Thank you that you have made a way for it to be possible for us to gather even by distance. We look forward to the day that we can all gather again together in a physical location without mask, rejoicing in your great keeping power. Now bless your people, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If ever there was a time in history in which the world's need made an opportunity for the message of the gospel, it is now. There is a pandemic causing massive loss of life, isolation, and anxiety. The exposure of racial injustices, protests, anti-protests, rioting, looting, and the like, and destruction of property across the country has made for people to feel unnerved. There is a nervous energy around the fall of the election that reflects the world's hope in an earthly king. Whether that hope is because you follow a beast of burden or a pachyderm, it happens because people of the world have no heavenly king in whom they can rest their hopes. The gospel's message of life, of righteousness, and of the rule of a good and great king is just what all need to hear so that we can thrive and not simply survive or even meet social demise during this global pandemic. In order for us to step into this occasion, maximize it for the glory of God, and love those in our spheres of influence with mercy, we have to decide that we are going to trust the Lord when we face great opposition. There will be those who will gladly tell us to be more practical when it comes to questions of life, and to shut up talking about life after death even though we are looking at 917,000 deaths by the coronavirus worldwide and 196,000 deaths in the U.S., that's 917,000 people facing eternity. Others, rightly fighting for present righteousness in the social realm, would be glad to show unrighteousness toward us and blame all wrong in society on the church. And in your world, wherever you land politically, the idea of not mixing or discussing religious and politics will reign. 
Any talk of Christ being Lord rather than Caesar being Lord may make you the most disliked person on your block, in your dorm, on your floor, or around your family, your team, or even in your home. The thinking of an end, no easy, no persecution Christian faith, a no persecution Christian faith that is reflected in comfortable pews, Sunday morning nursery options, and in church coffee stations, that cannot determine our actions at this time. We are going to have to steer away from self-preservation and live steadfastly by the authority of the Word of God. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah lives at a time when people need to hear the message of the Lord. Worship of false gods bounds and rejection of the Lord is the order of the day. Now it looks like Elijah has the holy gumption needed for a time like this, for he has just slaughtered 950 prophets of Baal and the Asherah and previously called King Ahaz into account by stopping the rain all over his land. Being afraid of the faces of the opposition or being dismissed from its present pain and past never seems to enter into Elijah's mind. He appears to have the courage and the zeal for the Lord that all of us long for and wish we could have when that hostile Uncle Dwight and that boisterous Aunt May are at family gatherings. Then... Enter Jezebel. This is the first foe Elijah faces who has the conviction, determination, military power, and reach to actually cause Elijah harm. Her threat to slay Elijah by sundown in the manner that he slaughtered the false prophets is something that she very well can and definitely intends to do. When her message reaches Elijah's ears, he has a life and death choice to make. What Elijah does next is informative for seeing the choices before us when living and proclaiming the will of God is met with dismissal, rejection, or harm, or even death, and is also met by us with the temptation to preserve our lives rather than trust the Lord to preserve them. We have three choices. Number one, we can stop running and wait for the Lord's provision. We see that in verses one through eight. Elijah hears the message and takes off running. He is not running down the street. He is running from Jezreel in northern Israel to Beersheba in the southern part of Israel. This is a 120-mile, six-day journey. Even after jettisoning the extra weight of his servant, he goes one more day further to escape from Jezebel in the desert as if she cannot find him there. He is worn out from this week-long run. His weariness from running shows up in his request to die as one as sinful as his fathers before him. It also shows up in his need to sleep and his choice of a broom shrub as a place of shade when he is running from a raving mad monarch like 
she's not going to see him under a broom tree. While he is asleep, an angel shows up. An angel on the scene means that God has entered into Elijah's dilemma because angels are servants of the Lord, as Elijah himself will later say. When the angel speaks, he is speaking for God, which means we are getting revelation from God. The angel twice tells Elijah to arise and eat, showing him the food that he has prepared. Most importantly, the angel points out to Elijah that he does not have strength for the journey on his own to preserve his life. Instead, he needs to listen to the command to arise and eat the provision that has come from God. Elijah should not have run in the first place because he did what was right in slaughtering the prophets. God confirmed this right act by consuming the offering. The same God could have rained down fire on Jezebel as he did on the sacrifice at Mount Carmel. So Elijah should have looked at that messenger when he gave the message and said, Oh, really? I tell you what. Tell Jezebel to grab two bulls and a whole lake of water and meet me at the Mount of Carmel. However, Elijah needs to do more than remember the great acts of God in the past, lest he live only for the incredible displays. When he follows the word of God given through the angel and eats, he is able to go in that power for 40 days. The contrast is apparent. Fleeing in his own strength, he can go for up to seven days at best, and then he needs to get a nap. Following the command of God, he can go for 40 days with no need for a wink of sleep along the way. The passage says he goes for 40 days and nights. In the face of our Jezebels, it is natural for us to think of running rather than standing firm and doing what is pleasing to the Lord. We have been conditioned to cower to abusive parents, bullying teachers, and the loudest objector person in our circles of friends who would be quick to mock anyone who disagrees with her or him on anything. It doesn't matter the topic. Let alone that same person will certainly heckle us if we bring up something about Christ and that one does not believe in anything religious or spiritual. We look at such persons' positions, influence, and their said abilities to make or break our lives, and we say to ourselves, now I need to be careful and wise here. Maybe I need to use a little bit more tact. I don't want to lose my jobs. I don't want these people not to like me. The enemy knows that fear of loss of job or friendships will make us shrink back from following the Lord, and so he will throw everything at us in these forms. Self-preservation is natural to us. What we need to say is, Lord, I need to trust you to provide for me and then find what you provide to be enough to keep my life. You can rain down fire on Mount Carmel to remove this opponent, or you can give me the strength to stand here and just take her or his messiness. Let your word 
guide me in your strength to say and to do what is right. Second, we can stop looking for the miraculous display and follow the Lord's whisper. We see that in verses 9 through 18. After his 40-day wilderness marathon, Elijah lands in a cave rather than under another broom tree. He seems to think he will find safety because God has met Moses on this very mountain. But the choice of the cave is another weak place of self-preserving false safety when the queen has a military at her disposal. In the cave, the word of the Lord comes apart from an angelic messenger this time. The Lord simply speaks to Elijah, asking him why he is in the cave. The question intends self-examination that will expose Elijah's irrational fear of Jezebel and self-preserving ways. What the question in fact exposes is great ego on the part of Elijah, akin to running seven days from Jezebel. Elijah will now speak in great extremes. Here they are. First, he says he has been very jealous and not just jealous for the Lord. Second, seemingly all the rest of Israel are in rampant idolatry, even though we know that many of them just sided with Elijah on Mark Carmel. Third, if Israel really had wanted to take his life, as he says, they had ample time to do it on Mount Carmel. It actually is Jezebel and her fan club who is seeking his life. It is not all of Israel. Moreover, it is Elijah himself who just asked the Lord to let him die. Elijah's words here are so extreme with ego that he misses the significance of addressing God as the Lord of hosts, as the leader of the armies of heaven that could easily wipe out Jezebel and all of his armies. Elijah knows that God has angels at his disposal. Elijah's words are an appeal to God to say in effect, don't you think I am worthy of protection? Look at me, I have been faithful. I don't deserve this from this wicked witch. You have stopped rain and brought down fire from heaven before. Why don't you show up for me like that? Now this is the ultimate pity party. This is like saying, look God how I've represented you. I've cared for my children. I've provided for my home. I don't deserve this treatment in my own home. Well, God obliges. God sends wind. God sends an earthquake. God sends fire. But he himself is not showing up personally in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. He will not show up personally in any of these grand displays. Yet, a very gentle whisper comes. 
reminiscent of the Lord hiding Moses in the cleft of the rock as his glory passes by. So now Elijah must cover his face with his cloak. The speaking of this whisper with no one else around and coming after the miraculous displays means that God himself is present. Elijah cannot look on God. He must cover his face, lest the glory break out on him. But what we find is that it is the voice that matters. And it is not that God shows up in grand displays, a miraculous movement. Occasionally, you and I will get a question from the persecuted believer concerning why the Lord doesn't speak audibly to us like he did to the apostles. My first answer to that question is that we are not ready to suffer like the apostles if you think about what we see in the book of Acts. See, with what they faced, they needed audible reassurance. My second answer to that question is that God, in fact, does speak to us the way he spoke to his apostles. He just does it through the written word of God. Immediately, a well-meaning person might retort to that and ask, Pastor, don't you think, though, we need a modern word of prophecy? Why? Why would we need a modern word of prophecy? Have we exhausted what was said in the ancient written word of God? I don't think we yet have 300,000 miles on the words of the prophets. In fact, I'm not even sure if we have 100,000 miles on the words of the prophets yet. When we can all say that God what God is telling us to do from places like Nahum, Ezekiel 16, Isaiah 20, Jeremiah 43, Micah 4, Zechariah 5, and not just the contents of those places, but obedience to them and what it means for us to obey all the other prophetic words of scriptures, then we can go to God and say, God, I'm going to need something modern if I'm going to keep hearing your voice and trust you to preserve my life. We have to have God's word so present before us that even at the threat of life, we are covering our faces in worship before God. We have to have God's word so present that we are listening to his voice, even if it sounds like it is only a whisper in comparison to the loudness of the threats in our lives. We are not going to go against the grain on justice or on political issues if the voices of the world are louder than the voices of God's word to us. We want influential friendships and approval of unbelievers in our circles of influence. And in doing so, we will miss doing what the Lord says in order to maintain them. Yet, Elijah's narrative shows us it is always best to heed God's word and to be sensitive to the voice of God. Having made his voice the real issue, the Lord will ask Elijah the same question. The question will come back once again. 
This time we are expecting Elijah to confess his sinfulness since he has stood in the very presence of God and covered his face. However, Elijah is going to double down with the egotistical pity party and go back to God in effect saying, you know what? That whisper thing you did is nice and it's good, but I deserve something like fire and an earthquake. I need you to unleash your wind on Jezebel so I can stop running. I'll stop running when you do something like that. Elijah is still thinking of self-preservation on his own terms when the Lord just showed him that he very well can preserve his life, but only chooses to show up in a whisper. Based on how the Lord responds here, I think it is safe to say that responding in humility to a small but gentle voice of God in Scripture is what the Lord is after. To the self-preserving Elijah, he reveals a plan that Elijah could not see because Elijah is finite and not divine. Elijah is not omniscient, so he cannot see down the road to what the Lord has in store. God intends to take care of his enemies, and he will task Elijah to anoint his chosen instruments, including his own successor. And the Lord is preserving 7,000 times the number of people in obedience that Elijah thinks are in obedience. This has to be humbling for Elijah, a God who already has the kings of two regions appointed and plans to use them to cut down his own enemies, could have taken out Jezebel with one word of truth. Elijah has run south for 40 days, and now he must trace those steps and go completely north in Israel, and he will be out of a job when he is done. Looking for the Lord to show up to defend us with awesome displays of power is not what we should be after. That is what the world is after. God, prove yourself by showing up on demand. We instead are people who follow the voice of God's word, no matter how small it seems. Third, we can stop obeying half-heartedly or be shamed by other followers. Elijah obediently goes to Elisha's house. I'll use Elisha here so not to confuse the sound with Elijah, although it is Elisha. But that is the end of Elijah's obedient. He does not anoint Elisha as successor, but places the cloak on him as if to say, follow me. He does so while passing by, not stopping to perform the act of anointing or even explain what he is doing. He even responds with words that encourage Elisha to stay with his parents rather than take over the job as the main prophet in Israel. Elijah is a prophet who now is not obeying the word of God. He never anoints Hazael, and Elisha is the one who will anoint Jehu. 
But Elisha knows what is at stake when the prophet of God shows up and throws a cloak on him. Even though Elijah does not anoint him, Elisha is all in on following the prophet. He chops up the 24 oxen and even chops up the 12 yokes that were holding them together. He cooks up the oxen in a meal and gives it away to the people. He is going to leave home and not have a job to return to just in case, so to speak, prophetic ministry does not work out. No, he is all in. He is trusting the Lord to take care of him and not trying to make things work out on his own. When I read Elijah's story in this passage, I wonder what this has to do with the healing of the world, the title of our series. As I suggested in the introduction, it has everything to do with the healing of the world or the healing of the nations. We have the message of the gospel. Our Lord Jesus has raised from the dead. The world before us is intimidating, cruel, unjust, and growing in its moral laxness. This is not the time for us to retreat to the hills. Neither is it the time for us to start a cultural war. It is time for us in meekness to be uncompromising, courageous, bold, and zealous in speaking the truth of the gospel and in speaking the truthful positions that flow from the gospel. We are not people who carry swords to slaughter prophets, but the fruit of the false prophets, the philosophers, the pundits, the teachers, the talking heads of our day do need to hear the truth and see a people who are fearless and loving because their Savior has risen and defeated death. If we want to see glimpses of our world's future healing in this present life, we have to offer that message of healing. But we still have to remember there are no promises that any one person will welcome that offer of healing. All persons could reject that offer of healing that comes through the message of the gospel. Yet we have to offer it, and our lives should make it hard for others to reject that offer. The healing of the world also seems to require three things to curb our appetite for self-preservation, our desire not to involve ourselves in the healing of the world, because of the fear the world causes us. First, we have to fight people-pleasing. Fighting people-pleasing has been a challenge for me all of my life. When I was younger, my physical stature was the driving factor in people-pleasing. As I became older, my status and desire to be liked and not be hated became the engines that drove people-pleasing. But I have learned from past mistakes to tell people no and to correct those who need to be corrected, even if they won't like me afterwards. The alternative is that I overload myself and clean up the messes made by the ones I should have corrected. The same holds true for not being counted for Jesus 
when wanting to be liked by someone who opposes Jesus, doesn't want to hear all of our religious talk. You, like me and Elijah, are trying to preserve your life in your own strength. But we have to ask, for what are we willing to be accountable when it comes to the souls of others? If you and I won't be bold, the Lord has an Elisha waiting in the wings who will be bold for him. Second, we each need to pray for moral courage. Few people around us exercise real moral courage or do so consistently. I look at some ministries that have been loud toward authorities about reopening and their amendment rights. I wish they would fight for other rights in the same vein and with the same vim or vigor. And I wish they would jump into fights to eradicate spousal abuse and workplace harassment with the same zeal. Consistent moral courage. We are not born with moral courage, no matter how physically courageous we are. Many of us will be physically courageous and will put up our fists to fight for anything. But moral courage, that's something for which we need the spirit of Christ to work inside of us. Third, we need to review what God's word already tells us about God's power to save. God does not need to show up in an earthquake. He has done that already. He already rolled the stone away from the mouth of Jesus' tomb, and he already showed death who is the real boss. The one who defeated death faced the choice of self-preservation or obedience over and over again. But he did not come down off the cross when they said, if you are the Christ, save yourself. In obedience to his father, he stayed on the cross. He did not preserve his own life. Instead, he decided just to save you and me. Let us pray. Now, Father, we bless you for the love of the Son, who in obedience to your word did not preserve his own life and set the example that Elijah did not follow. Please give us more grace in this very hostile world to be servants who will not run from the threat of voices who have no power over you Instead, in this time of great need in our world, make us gentle, meek, bold, humble, courageous, merciful, and gracious servants with the message of the gospel. Send us into the world that needs Christ to save. In Jesus' name we pray.